Well, good afternoon and welcome to Deep in Scripture. Uh, my name is Marcus Grodi, your host for this program, and I uh, appreciate you joining us on EWTN Radio, as well as this is broadcast on the Internet. If you're interested in, uh, in, in being involved with our connection with the Internet, you can go to deepinscripture.com. You can watch the program. You can get all the archive program, uh, previous programs, as well as find out the information about today's guests. So thank you for joining us. Uh, normally on this program, the, the uh, pattern is for me to invite a friend uh, to talk about scriptures they never saw. And so our guest today is Richard Ballard. Dr. Richard Ballard is a convert to the church from Lutheranism. Having served as an ordained Lutheran parish pastor for 23 years, Richard was in the trenches for 23 years. We'll talk about that in a moment. After a long period of discernment, study, and prayer, he and his wife were received into full communion with the Catholic Church at Easter 2006. Richard, who holds advanced degrees in counseling and pastoral care, has most recently served as director of pastoral care at St. Mary's Catholic Church in Greenville, South Carolina. And in August, he's going to go through a job change. He will begin serving in a new position as pastoral associate as Our Lady of the Rosary Catholic Church, also in Greenville. He has been married for 28 years to his wife Ruth, also a former Lutheran minister, who writes, um, paints, icons, creates mosaics on religious themes, is a secular Carmelite and a homemaker, and it'd be great to have Ruth on here sometime too to talk about the, how the scriptures drew her heart home to the Catholic faith, um, but also to find out more about the, her writing of icons as something which is so different from our Protestant backgrounds. But it's great to have Richard on the program, both Ruth and Richard were on the Journey Home program. If you'd like to find out more about their full journey, you can go to EWTN.com and, and download the audio version of that Journey Home program. Uh, Richard chose for his text today uh, 1 Corinthians chapter 11, verses 17 through 34. It's a long section, but an extremely important section. So let me read this for your benefit. And then we'll take a break, and then Richard will join us, and we'll talk about the significance of this. Now, just as a slight background, uh, you know, there's a lot of background in this first letter of Cor to the uh, Christians at Corinth from Paul. A good part of this letter is Paul responding to uh, questions dealing with problems in this local gathering of Christians at Corinth. And one of the problems dealt with the celebration of the liturgy and the Eucharist. And so he is addressing this, uh, beginning with verse 17. And Paul writes, But in the following instructions, I do not commend you, because when you come together, it is not for the better, but for the worse. For in the first place, when you assemble at a church, I hear that there are divisions among you, and I partly believe it. For there must be factions among you in order that those who are genuine among you must, may be recognized. When you meet together, it is not the Lord's Supper that you eat. For in eating, each one goes ahead with his own meal, and one is hungry and another is drunk. What? Do you not have houses to eat and drink in? Or do you despise the church of God and humiliate those who have nothing? What shall I say to you? Shall I commend you in this? No, I will not. For I received from the Lord what I also delivered to you, that the Lord Jesus, on the night when he was betrayed, took bread. And when he had given thanks, he broke it and said, This is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. In the same way also the cup after supper, saying, This cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. For as often as you eat this bread and drink this cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. Whoever therefore eats the bread or drinks the cup of the Lord in an unworthy manner will be guilty of profaning the body and blood of the Lord. Let a man examine himself and so eat of the bread and drink of the cup. For anyone who eats and drinks without discerning the body eats and drinks judgment upon himself. That is why many of you are weak and ill, and some have died. But if you, 
But if we judged ourselves truly, we should not be judged. But when we are judged by the Lord, we are chastened so that we may not be condemned along with the world. So then, my brethren, when you come together to eat, wait for one another. If anyone is hungry, let him eat at home, lest you come together to be condemned. About the other things, I will give directions when I come. You're listening to Deep in Scripture. This is your host, Marcus Grodi, and you're hearing us on EWTN, your global Catholic radio network. Don't forget to watch the Journey Home program with Marcus Grodi on EWTN. Each week, Marcus meets new guests who have journeyed to the Catholic faith from many backgrounds. Be challenged and encouraged as they witness to how their love for the truth of Jesus Christ has brought them into full communion with the Catholic Church. That's the Journey Home program on EWTN, live on Monday evenings at 8 p.m. Eastern Time. If you enjoy the Journey Home television program on EWTN, you'll want to purchase a copy of Marcus Gerdeis' book, Journey's Home. Journey's Home contains the conversion stories of men and women who, as a result of their surrender to Jesus Christ, heard a call to follow him more completely in the Catholic Church. Many of them were Protestant pastors or missionaries. Others were laymen who, though working in secular jobs, took their calling to serve Christ in the world very seriously. To order your copy of Marcus Gerdeis' book, Journey's Home, simply visit our website at www.chresources.com or call us toll-free at 1-800-664-5110. Welcome back to Deep in Scripture. This is your host, Marcus Grodi. I'm joined today by Dr. Richard Ballard. Hello, Richard. Are you there? Uh, good morning, Marcus. Good afternoon, rather. Well, right. Thank you for joining us. I uh, appreciate you taking some time out of your busy schedule. I mean, you're, uh, uh, even as I mentioned to the audience, uh, you're still serving as the Director of Pastoral Care at St. Mary's Catholic Church in Greenville. And uh, here in a month or so, you're going to be taking on even a bit more uh, as pastoral associate. Um, and uh, talk a bit about that because, uh, I mean, you served as, a, like I mentioned, in the trenches for some uh, 20-some years, right? Uh, 23 years. 23 years as a, a Lutheran parish pastor, yes. And I'm just finishing up the work now at St. Mary's, um, tying up some odds and ends. A wonderful experience there. Father J. Scott Newman, mm-hmm. pastor, his well-known parish. Uh, very good experience there. And uh, I'm looking forward very much to this transition that is to take place really August the 1st, so I'm going to have a bit of time in between to uh, regroup, R&R, a little bit of uh, Mm -hmm. travel and study. But on August the 1st, I'll be starting as uh, with Father Dwight Longenecker's very Uh well-known priest and writer, who is now going to be the pastoral administrator, parish priest at Our Lady of the Rosary. Uh, He'll continue to serve as uh, chaplain at St. Joseph's Catholic School here in Greenville. So he'll have a very full plate. Uh, many of your uh, listeners probably are aware, uh, some may not be, that he is also a married priest, mm-hmm. former Anglican clergyman. So he's a husband and father and uh, prolific writer and speaker. So he's just going to be very busy. And I'm looking forward to working with him as pastoral associate to help support his priestly ministry there at Our Lady of the Rosary and to serve the people of God in that parish. Well, so it's going to be an exciting time, an exciting transition. Yeah, the audience may not be fully aware that, uh, though, of course, the the clear tradition in the Latin Rite Church, of course, is for celibate clergy and for great reason. And uh, but the church has recognized through what it calls a pastoral provision, its pastoral recognition of the fact that men like you and and Dwight and, and myself that when we were ordained as Protestant ministers long before we thought about the Catholic Church, we were discerning and following a call, and the Church recognizes that. And I think in, it seems to me that what, you're, what you have been offered is, uh, is really an ideal, unique uh, stewardship of the training gifts that you received when, when you were Lutheran in preparation for your service now. 
Well, I'm uh, very grateful for what I did receive, uh, training, education, experience as a Lutheran pastor, and uh, will have been using and will look forward to use uh, those uh, resources in service to the church now, and uh, I'm, I'm grateful for the opportunity to do so. Now, um, since you won't be ordained, at least not yet, uh, I mean, that might be a part of your discernment process. We don't need to go there. Uh, that's always a, something between you and your bishop, of course. But the only thing that, that you won't be able to do is the sacraments, and, and unless you're given permission to preach. But you're, in terms of the other pastoral care, particularly in your background in counseling, that was another great way in which the Lord prepared you before for your service now. Yes, uh, I've had uh, some extensive uh, educational work and experience in counseling, and to be able to bring those gifts and uh, those resources into the service of the church in uh, a pastoral position is uh, is just a great opportunity, a great blessing for myself and hopefully for those uh, with with whom I will be working. Mm-hmm. Uh, it, it's a bit of, of uh, uh, a change in point of view from what I had previously understood my role to be as a counselor. Uh, in, in, this, in that, in the Church, it is connected very firmly with an understanding of the mystical body of Christ mm-hmm. and, and in service to the people of God in a particular place. Uh, it, it sort of opens it up, and, and so that it's not uh, essentially a clinical experience only, but it is also uh, a, a spiritual experience and drawing on the strength that uh, parishioners have uh, and receive uh, the grace of God through the sacraments, uh, often particularly connected with the Sacrament of Reconciliation. It enables uh, pastoral counseling then to be a, a source of, uh, of grace, of continuing healing that God brings to his people through these means. Yeah, it would be interesting. We might do this another time, and that's to reflect on the second letter, Corinthians, uh, that first couple paragraphs where it talks about the common suffering and comfort that we experience as members in the body of Christ. Um, verse 6, uh, if we are afflicted, it is for your comfort and salvation. If we are comforted, it is for your comfort. When we experience, when you patiently endure the same sufferings that we suffer. Uh, it really talks about really what you're doing, in other words, that the training and experience as well as the suffering that you have experienced personally has partially been to prepare you for your service. Yes, absolutely. It's, uh, God doesn't waste anything. He uses all <laughs> of these experiences in uh, the sanctification of his people and their comfort. Uh, it, it flows out of, I believe, uh, the, the priestly ministry that God gives to his church uh, as well as the diaconal ministry. Mm-hmm. Uh, it flows out of that being grounded in uh, the means of grace that God has given to his church. And so I, I look upon it as not only a supportive role uh, for the, that I will have for uh, uh, Father Longnecker, but also as a very active role uh, uh, that I can uh, give something to the people of God uh, as an instrument of, of, God's, of God's healing, his grace. All right. Richard, the, the text you chose for us to look at today is one that I'm sure is familiar with our audience, any of the audience who uh, are Christians who celebrated the Lord's Supper or the Eucharist are familiar with the words of 1 Corinthians 11. For these are the words of institution that I used as a Presbyterian pastor, I'm sure you used as a Lutheran pastor. And the reason I know you did, because I was brought up Lutheran, and I remember, in fact, I remember the old Red Book uh, order of worship from probably word for word. Pardon? The service book and hymnal. Yeah, I mean, that's what I grew up with. These were the words that we went. And I'm, and the reason you chose this passage, I'm assuming it's because, to a certain extent, this was an opening of your heart to the Catholic Church. Well, absolutely. The reason I chose this passage today to, to discuss is because uh, of the centrality of the Eucharist in the life of the Church, that it's the source and summit of our life together our experience of Christ himself. And so that centrality of, of the Eucharistic sacrifice was uh, key, a key element in 
drawing me into the church. And also the reality of the Lord's very presence as underscored in this passage. That's why it was very important to me. <laughs> the, uh, before we dig into it, uh, there's one couple verses that I want you to reflect on, if you would, at first. And, and that is, if you compare, first let me quote from 1 Corinthians 15, um, now I would remind you, brethren, in what terms I preached to you the gospel, which you received, in which you stand. And then in verse 3, for I delivered to you as of first importance what I also received. And then if we go back to the text you chose, verse 23, for I received from the Lord what I also delivered to you. And then if we jump all the way to the end, uh, about the other things, I will give you directions when I come. In that is this thing I didn't see as a Presbyterian. Did you see it as a Lutheran? Was the significance, the centrality of his oral teaching as the foundation for everything that these Christians at Corinth believed? It, it, certainly. Uh, and, and passing on the tradition. Yes. Uh, having received it. And this, of course, is uh, mentioned by, by Paul in the text that he got this from the Lord, and uh, also uh, handing it on to the community there uh, as uh, an authoritative teaching and an authoritative instruction, the continuity of the faith. Yeah, you, a good Lutheran, uh, founded on Lutheran's uh, primary principle of sola scriptura, to me, it runs a little bit askew from the background of this very passage, doesn't it? Because what he's talking about is an oral teaching. Correct. Uh, I, certainly, it, it, it would run contrary, and I see that clearly now. Uh, I, I, not so much then, of course. <laughs> but uh, the, the idea that the Scripture alone is where we receive uh, teaching and uh, Authority, if you will, to interpret what we do and its meaning and so forth, uh, thus get contradicted by Scripture itself. <laughs> that it's difficult when you're a Protestant to see that. I think, uh, uh-huh. and 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 we really didn't think about it at that time, uh, or at least I didn't. That where did the Scriptures come from? It was the Church yeah. that gave us the Scriptures, of course, to the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, but uh, they didn't simply exist prior to the Church. The Church existed prior to the sacred scriptures of the New Testament. Yeah, the irony of this very passage which you've chosen is that if there hadn't been a problem centering around this celebration of the Eucharist at Corinth, if there hadn't been a problem, we would have not had written down the very words of institution that are used in the Eucharist, other than maybe other liturgical texts, which we have outside the New Testament. But the reason we have this is because Paul's having a problem with these people. He can't get there to to tell them face to face, so he's got to write it down. (laughs) Right. And and even of of this passage, uh, this is the earliest, at least uh, most scholars would agree that this is the earliest uh, recounting of the Eucharistic institution mm-hmm. that we have, it predates the, the writing of the Gospels and the, uh, the narrative and, and the synoptics. Uh, so it, it, very early on, we see, we receive this uh, from, from the Apostle himself. Again, through the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, God could see beyond the current need for, for this epistle, and of course, but the time and, and content and uh, reason for its writing of, is, just as you said, was for the problems that were happening in, in that particular community. Which, in essence, uh, also another subtle thing that it emphasizes is that the, the need for a hierarchical authority to make sure that things are done correctly at the local churches uh, elders had been appointed at Corinth, trained, ordained, 
but without Paul's presence, sometimes the 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 still those still growing in the faith are expo, ex, uh, experimenting with liturgy with ideas, and then the less educated are pressing, and so sometimes they move off, they they they, they move outside the envelope, and so Paul has to correct them, bring them back in. That's the hierarchy. Absolutely, and, and apostolic authority. Mm-hmm. And, of course, the uh, successors of the apostles are the bishop of the church, uh, in communion with the Holy Father, uh, receive apostolic succession, receive the same authority. And what we read here of the divisions and problems that were happening in this community at Corinth, well, we can look around ourselves at, uh, at ourselves today in the church and Sometimes it's not so different <laughs> that uh, the bishops also need to and do uh, guide the, the particular churches in uh, correction and in teaching and so forth as the apostle did. But it's, uh, it's very clear, even if only subtly in this passage, that uh, that authority and uh, to govern and to sanctify residing in the apostolic office is being exercised by mm-hmm. Paul in this community. Yeah, I guess one could just bring us up to date with the scandal that sadly has uh, hit the media uh, worldwide. Uh, and what we see is not that it's not a core problem with the church, uh, as if the church failed, it's people in it. Uh, and the hierarchy, it's always difficult to make sure everyone that's out there serving the name of the Lord is not um, failing in their spiritual battles at their local levels. And the hierarchy does the best they can to train and to guide and to reprove. Uh, but there comes times when, for a moment, the devil seems to win at the local level. And so the church has to do what it's got to do to bring, to, you know, to correct, even at times to punish those within the church that are not living out their role. Uh, sadly, the world outside the church doesn't understand the spiritual battle and, and the hierarchical control, but we're seeing a little bit of it here in this letter of, of Corinth. Uh, the Corinthians is there misappropriating and, and misapplying the teachings of the church. Richard, let's take a break. When we come back, I'd like you to jump in and uh, talk about the particular verses in this that had such a big influence on your own journey. All right, very good. You're listening to Deep in Scripture. This is your host, Marcus Grota. I'm joined today by Dr. Rich Ballard, and you're hearing us on EWTN, the Global Catholic Radio Network. EWTN.com is online with program information, the latest news, Pope Benedict XVI, plus tools for living the faith like prayers, Catholic Q&A, and other resources. Log on today to EWTN.com. Follow the compelling journey of one man who became a Church of Christ minister and found himself entering the Catholic Church. Bruce Sullivan shares his conversion story in his new book titled Christ in His Fullness. In this book, he communicates a passionate love for Christ and the inexhaustible treasures of grace found in the Catholic Church. Perhaps you, too, will discover the same riches in the fullness of Christ. To order a copy of this book for yourself or a friend, please visit our website, www.chnetwork.org or call us at 1-800-664-5110. All right, welcome back to Deep in Scripture. This is your host, Marcus Grodi. I'm joined by, by Dr. Richard Ballard. And Richard, let's jump right into this. I keep seeing to take us off into other tangential questions. I think they're fitting to the context, but what were the verses particularly from this that, uh, that grabbed you and opened your heart to the church? Well, all of the passage uh, it, in its entirety pointed me to uh, the Catholic Church. You have to, to deal with, at the very beginning of the institution of the Eucharist, what was going on. And so to look at this passage as a whole mm-hmm. uh, is to take one very deeply into the Church's history, and to, to uh, put yourself at the very beginning of 
what was to become and grow into the church that we know today. And so it, the trajectory of the passage, its foundational elements, uh, uh, sort of propelled me to, to look at uh, the authoritative beginning of what was commonly uh, done at that time and, and resulted in uh, what we do today. Uh, as a Lutheran, of course, we had uh, a liturgical form of, of mm-hmm. service, mm-hmm. and in the particular strain of Lutheranism that I uh, belonged to, the uh, liturgy was very important. Uh, it was more of a high church, you could call it, I suppose, expression of Lutheranism. And uh, we had moved in over years to having uh, Holy Communion every Sunday, which was not a common expression. Right. Uh, in many Lutheran circles. I don't know about your background, Marcus. Ours was uh, once a month. Once a month. Mm -hmm. And so the uh, passage of Scripture that that I'm looking at here showed that the Eucharistic uh, celebration was central to the community's life. It's what they were doing. So that's a part of what was propelling me as well, because, of course, within the the Catholic Church, from the very beginning, uh, the Eucharist had place of honor and was uh, as source and summit of of the church's life together. So that was part of it. Uh, Also, the setting of this passage is is liturgical. In and of itself, it shows the church in in worship and in in fellowship and in in action uh, that is uh, expressive of doctrine. What they were actually doing came from what they believed. The, the understanding of, uh, of the sacramental reality of Christ's presence was uh, a, a consequence uh, of, the, of what they were, uh, how they were worshiping liturgically, and how they worshiped liturgically was informed by what they believed. And it was very real here in this passage. Uh, particularly, for example, in the uh, consequences of not discerning the body of the Lord properly mm-hmm. and, and eating unworthily. One was to drink uh, and eat and drink judgment upon oneself. Now, can I ask, what, how did you deal with those passages back when you were a Lutheran? Clergy? Basically, we ignored them. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I, did you do that as Goal, a Presbyterian? Exactly. In fact, uh, uh, I know when I was on the journey, and making the transition from being a Presbyterian pastor, I had been pastor for 10 years, and then 9 or 10 years, and then was just starting to look at the Catholic Church, it was asking myself why we ignored verses 27 through 29. I quoted the other verses word for word whenever I led the congregation in the Lord's Supper. But why did I ignore 27 through 29? Uh, which got me into a deeper study of, of the Eucharist. Um, and I'm wondering for you too, Richard, it, what it made me do was to look at the early church fathers. Did that happen to you also? Absolutely. It was, I credit really my conversion to the church from the reading of the fathers. And to what they described, uh, and to knowing and coming to know that what they described was not what I was a part of, <laughs> and but wanted to be a part of. Mm-hmm. So absolutely, yes. The, the whole context of this passage is set really in a, what I, I would call an, uh, a fellowship meal, an agape meal in the early church. We read something about that in uh, the book of Jude. Mm-hmm. And that from that early uh, agape meal, the Eucharist was distinct. And their scholars disagree on whether uh, it was at the beginning, uh, prior to the meal, or at the end, but it was clearly a distinct action that, had, uh, that would take place when the community gathered. And what was the problem that Paul was writing about was that uh, the divisions in the community centered around uh, oppositional behavior between 
uh, the more wealthy members of the community and the poorer ones, and even uh, to having some drunkenness taking place in the uh, setting of, of the meal, and, and really creating an environment inappropriate for the celebration of the Eucharist. So Paul, again, with his authority as the apostle, uh, correcting that abuse, mm-hmm. and, and that was the, the context of the writing, and gave him the opportunity to instruct the proper celebration of the Eucharist. So, uh, from the context, in verse 23, we go into the actual instruction. Paul says, I receive from the Lord. That, that's a very important element, I think, in the passage. Uh, again, that he, he as, as an apostle, received this information this uh, direction from the Lord himself. Now, Paul was not at the Last Supper. Right. So how did he get uh, this, this tradition from the Lord, this revelation? I, I would have to believe that it was from the risen Christ, the vision that he had mm-hmm. from the risen Christ himself. Part of the being an apostle, part of the apostolic authority, is uh, the twelve was that they had been commissioned by Jesus himself. As did Paul on the Damascus, as was Paul on the Damascus Road. Right. And so the authority here, again, is underscored. Uh, something that we didn't have so much in Lutheranism. Right. That, uh, <laughs> uh, it, it, the practical aspect of Lutheranism, at least in the, the, the ELCA, which is what I was a, a part of, mm-hmm. uh, ended up being that each pastor was his or her own pope. Right. So, yep. what authority did you have? Well, it was whatever you could muster up, mm-hmm. even though there was uh, a tradition based on the confessions, and of course, the scriptures, but uh, there was a lacking of that succession, the lacking of that apostolic authority that we have in the Church. So that was part of what propelled me into looking at the Catholic Church more closely as well, and that you saw also when you read the Fathers. Uh, I, I assume that uh, having that sense of... Uh, needing that sense of uh, foundational authority was part of your journey as well. Oh, yeah, very much so. And uh, it was in a passage like this that, coupled with, uh, there's a verse in First Timothy, First or Second Timothy, where Paul is telling Timothy to uh, remember what you received and from whom you received. I think it's in Second uh, Second Timothy, chapter 3. And of course, he's referring back that he had re, he had received it from his grandmother. You know, the faith had been passed on um, in the uh, the scriptures, meaning the Old Testament scriptures, and how he had learned that. This idea of when I look at the verse you mentioned a bit ago, I, that I received from the Lord, what I also delivered to you. I'm trying to remember what I used to think when I was a pastor, Richard. When you were a pastor, there we were in the position standing in our pulpit, passing on to the people what we had received. In my mind, that was Sunday school, reading the Bible, going to Bible camps, going to seminary. That's how I received it, passing on. You received it in a different way. What united us is we believed it was from the Bible. But what you were teaching as a Lutheran and what I was teaching as a Presbyterian was slightly different, right? Right. Right, and uh, so that to me that underscored that the word written word alone is not sufficient to make sure that what you taught from your pulpit and I taught from mine was true. Right, that we could be each claiming that authority, sola scriptura, mm-hmm. and be teaching something quite different from each other. And you and I probably would have said that we received it from the Lord. We didn't have a vision that knocked us off a horse, but we received it from the Lord through our teachers, right. through prayer, through ordination, which, you know, in your case, in my case, I don't think I did anything crazy as a pastor, but the extreme of that is the Jim Joneses of the world. Well, right. Or the more uh, very uh, liberal elements of Protestantism that's just sort of taken over in, in my former denomination, the mm-hmm. ELCA, to the extent now that... Uh, they would ordain practicing homosexuals and uh, same-sex marriage and so forth. That's where it's come to today.
they say, well, we're basing this practice on our understanding of Scripture. Yeah, they would basically say they received it from the Lord. Right. Because they believe that at the vote of that gathering last summer, the Lord spoke. Right. And without an, an authority, uh, an apostolic authority, then what is to prevent that? Yeah. So we see it right here, the need for it in the very beginning. Mm-hmm. And then the, the actual uh, text of the words of institution. As I said earlier, the, the earliest account in Scripture is this one that Paul is given. And I, of course, said those words in the mm-hmm. Eucharistic liturgy and the Lutheranism many times. And Lutherans uh, have uh, a rather high view of the presence of Christ mm-hmm. in the sacrament uh, that we call the real presence, uh, that Christ's body and blood were truly present under, uh, along with, the bread and wine. Uh, some have called this consubstantiation. Mm-hmm. So we did believe that, at least on paper we believed. Mm-hmm. But the reality of it seemed to just strike me in verse 27, whoever therefore eats the bread or drinks the cup of the Lord in an unworthy manner will be guilty of profaning the body and blood of the Lord. And the consequences of that uh, Anyone who eats and drinks without discerning the body eats and drinks judgment upon himself. Again, we basically ignored that mm-hmm. and didn't talk about it very much, uh, if, if at all. But that struck me uh, as, as also a Eucharistic discipline that was lacking mm-hmm. in, in Lutheranism. That also was a verse that pointed me toward the Catholic Church. And strangely enough, it, it, it did it in a couple of different ways. First of all, uh, it did it in by showing uh, a deficit in my own practice, in my own uh, faith community of Lutheranism. We said we, <clears throat> we said we believed that the body and blood of Christ were truly there, and yet uh, we didn't act like it. Mm-hmm. A lot of the people would very cavalierly uh, come up and receive communion, and, and a lot of my colleagues, uh, the vast majority, for example, uh, would not treat the elements, bread and wine, with uh, with respect. Right. You uh, certainly didn't have the uh, liturgical uh, process uh, afterwards right. to take care of the elements respectfully. Well, uh, correct. Uh, a lot of a lot of Lutherans uh, that I was aware of, uh, embarrassingly enough to say, would take whatever was left of the, of the wine and. Uh, either pour it back in the bottle or pour it down the sink. Yep. And if they didn't use hosts, they would have uh, a loaf of, of crumbly bread. And once we always used hosts to avoid this problem, but some places, a lot of places, use bread. You would look at the floor of the church, and it was strown all over after yep. the communion service. And I uh, would read this passage and see exactly the seriousness uh, connected with the eating and drinking of the body and blood of Christ and, and then compare that to what I saw in Lutheranism as a very cavalier attitude toward uh, the Eucharistic elements, and, and, and I would have to ask, what's going on here? Yeah, well, just to quickly throw in, my, my background as a Presbyterian, I served uh, for a year and a half with the Church of Scotland, um, very conservative, tight <laughs> description of their understanding of Calvinism. They celebrate Lord's Supper once a year for a week. But to be able to receive, you had to have a token from the church that allowed you to the table. And it was a sign that you had demonstrated throughout the year that you were able, therefore, to receive the body in a worthy manner. They took it to that extreme uh, for church discipline. They totally dealt with verse 28 in a certain way, but I don't remember us ever dealing with what 29 says. Anyone who eats and drinks without discerning the body. Uh, a lot of Lutherans, the Lutheran uh, scholars, uh, Bible scholars, or theologians would interpret verse 29 without discerning the body uh, exclusively in terms of Christian hospitality. <laughs> 
that the body that is talk that Paul is talking about here is the body of believers, uh, the congregation, and therefore we would need uh, to be hospitable to each other, uh, to love each other, to welcome each other, to think of uh, what the church would call a preferential option for the poor, uh, and so forth. Which is not uh, to say it, it, not to say that that's wrong. Mm-hmm. But that's only one element. It's not the whole of the meaning of the passage. So um, a lot of Lutherans would uh, look at that passage and say it's, it's about the people, not about Eucharistic elements themselves. And I would say it's not an either-or, but a both-and. Yep. Yep. And primarily, uh, first and foremost, it is about the presence of the Lord himself. Uh, it's his body and his blood and as the Church teaches that are are substantially present, uh, body, blood, soul, and divinity, under the appearance of bread and wine. But that is what one would discern. And, uh, of course, in the Church, uh, the reverence and worship given to the Eucharist itself as the true presence of Christ uh, jumps out at me now from the page here, Mm -hmm. that in a way it did not when I was a Lutheran. And it started to do that for me when I began reading the early church fathers. In other words, when you looked at the wider context of what's going on here, how it was generally understood amongst Christians in those first couple hundred years, then their real presence just does jump out. It makes sense with this. Otherwise, it doesn't make sense at all because if it is merely symbolic. Right. You have to torture the text and then, then take the... Uh meaning away from the actual presence of, of the Lord and turn it towards the presence of the community. And, and if you do that, it, it, you're right, it doesn't make uh, sense within, within context. Richard, let's take another break. When we come back, uh, let's tie this together with some closing thoughts for our audience. Uh, what can they take from this? Uh, especially, let's say you've got some Lutheran folk listening right now. What would you say to them? open their hearts to the fullness of what this passage means for them as they seek to serve Christ. You're listening to Deep in Scripture. This is Marcus Grodi, your host, joined today by Dr. Richard Ballard, and you're hearing us on EWTN, Global Catholic Radio. The Coming Home Network International is a non-profit Catholic lay apostolate dedicated to helping Protestant clergy and laity come home to the Catholic Church. It was founded by Marcus Grodi, the host of this program, as well as the Journey Home television program on EWTN. If you are on the journey and interested in learning more about the Coming Home Network International or know someone who's thinking of becoming Catholic, please visit our website, www.chnetwork.org, or contact us at 1-800-664-5110. The Coming Home Network International and Marcus Grodi invite you to join us for our 8th Annual Deep in History Conference coming this fall to Columbus, Ohio. This year, our focus will be on the authenticity of the sacred scriptures as we ask, How firm is your foundation? Join us the weekend of October 22nd as we bring together another exciting list of guest speakers. For more information, go to deepinhistory.com or call us at 800-664-5110. Welcome back to Deep in Scripture. This is your host, Marcus Grodi, joined today by Dr. Richard Ballard. Just want to remind you that next time on the Journey Home television program, Open Line, uh, it will be Open Line program, and our guest will be Kevin Lentz. He's returning to the program. He's a revert from the Methodist faith. So please join me Monday night, 8 o'clock Eastern Standard Time, on the Journey Home program on EWTN television. Richard, uh, there's so much in this passage to cover, you know, and... Uh, but we can't get it all in. Some closing thoughts for both our Catholics, and, and let's say there's a Lutheran or so out there listening. I would, uh, taken as a whole, I would, that the passage uh, would especially commend itself for us to uh, consider what we are in the liturgy for, mm-hmm. our, our special deportment in the liturgy. That we're there to, 
to worship God and to focus on Him. It's about Him, not so much ourselves. And so we don't come to celebrate the community, but we come to celebrate the Eucharistic presence of the Lord and to offer our worship, our sacrifice of praise and thanksgiving, and to be in His very real presence. So the whole liturgical context, what are we about? That, it speaks to us in that way. It also speaks to us about the seriousness with which we should take uh, the presence of Christ in the sacrament. As the Church uh, teaches us, the body, blood, soul, and divinity of Christ are truly substantially there under the appearance of bread and wine. This is uh, uh, very important. It should remind us in whose presence we are. We're in the presence of the Lord. Therefore, we receive him uh, and worship him in the sacrament. We should not do this uh, cavalierly. We should do it with a great deal of preparation. And the preparation uh, for Catholics, I think, it would remind us to examine ourselves. Uh, here, I would say, to have a good examination of conscience mm -hmm. and to prepare for the Eucharist by being sure that we are in a state of grace, going to the sacrament of confession, receiving absolution, before we present ourselves for uh, the reception of Holy Communion at Mass. Uh, I would like for this passage to help Catholics uh, see longer lines at the confessional <laughs> and to uh, bring us more firmly into uh, the grace of our Lord in that way. Uh, it also reminds us to be uh, hospitable. That is not lacking there. It's not the primary focus, but, it, <laughs> but to be uh, uh, hospitable, to be welcoming to people, to invite people into the faith and to ask people to come and see, to, to share our treasures with them. And uh, I would say for Lutherans, what I would hope to underscore in this passage is the uh, reality of the presence of Christ and how seriously that was taken mm -hmm. uh, by the Apostle in writing to this community. If this is a real thing, that is, uh, the presence of Christ is truly there, then how should that make us act? How should that make us behave uh, towards uh, the presence? And, and what should it make us think? Where is that uh, reality most clearly proclaimed and lived out through history and today? So uh, for my non-Catholic friends, for Lutherans in particular, who, who claim a seriousness, uh, at least uh, confessionally, about the Eucharistic presence, I would say, look at the Fathers, look at the early Church, and uh, where do you find that today? Where is that same understanding lived out? It points uh, clearly to the Catholic Church, and so I would ask them to think carefully and prayerfully about that. Yeah, um, Ignatius of Antioch to the Smyrnians, mm -hmm. AD 107. They, the heretics, abstain from the Eucharist and from prayer because they do not confess that the Eucharist is the flesh of our Savior Jesus Christ, flesh which suffered for our sins and which the Father in his goodness raised up again. And there are others. I mean, the clarity of the early church recognizing the, the reality of the body and blood, soul, and divinity of our Lord Jesus in the Eucharist. One of the things that I thought there, as, I, as you were explaining it, uh, Richard, is, um, again, uh, and I know you made this emphasis, but just to remind us that, again, it isn't about ourselves; it's about Jesus, but it is also about the witness of, that, of his death until he comes, that little phrase there, which, right. we, which we kind of took to say, well, it's merely symbolic, but no, the context is that when we're recognizing the reality of this, it reminds us, it should remind us of our witness to one another. It should, in, in the face of the coming of the Lord. Mm -hmm. The whole passage also has an eschatological tone to it. In fact, uh, even the punishments for unworthily receiving the Eucharist that Paul mentions here are not uh, brought about vindictively by God, but they're medicinal. They are to correct. Mm -hmm and to bring people back into the truth and into obedience, so that that they are prepared to greet the Lord at his return. Yeah, verse 32, and when we are judged by the Lord, we are chastened so that we may not be condemned along with the world. The, the reality of Christ's presence 
now is, is proclaimed here, but also the reality of his return in glory and in his return to judge the living and the dead. And we wish to have ourselves uh, in a state of grace at that time and to be prepared to face uh, the coming of the Lord with joy. Richard, thanks a lot for joining us. Uh, I'm sorry that we've had to kind of uh, curtail. There's so much discussion we could go on in this passage. Um, I still wanted to reflect one last minute, though, on how, what does this verse say for your own ministry as a pastoral um, associate? I'm just thinking that this really feeds all that you do and why you are there at that church. Absolutely. To be able to uh, receive the mercy of the Lord, His grace uh, in the sacrament of reconciliation, to then be uh, able to, in that state, receive the Lord Himself. Not just grace, we receive grace in all the sacraments, but in in the Eucharist we receive grace, but also the Lord Himself. Mm -hmm. And thus strengthened by Him uh, to go out into the people, into the uh, the midst of of the community of of uh, believers there at, in the parish to serve them and to serve them in the name of the Lord as empowered by Him. Everything flows out of this, this height of, of the Lord's presence in the Eucharist, the source and summit of our life together. So I think that I would see my work as uh, being centered in, in that Eucharistic reality and flowing out of it with the strength uh, that Christ gives me Himself to serve His mystical body in this place. Yet, when I think about uh, counseling, uh, it just seems like the significance of the graces of the sacraments are what are absolutely necessary to help people change, as opposed to just let to themselves to be better or that they need the graces to be able to become the people that Christ wants them to be. Richard, thank you for joining us on Deep in Scripture. It's my pleasure, Marcus. Thank you. Look forward to talking to you again soon. God bless you in your new assignment. You work with Doctor uh, with Father Longnecker. And all of you for listening to Deep in Scripture, thank you very much. I hope this has been an encouragement to you. Go to the website, deepinscripture.com, to find out more. And if you have any comments, we'd love to hear from you. Uh, There's an email, uh, phone numbers, all at the website. You can also get involved with forums if you have any questions about your own journey of faith in relationship to Jesus Christ and His church. God bless you. look forward to being with you again next week. See you soon.